0: This episode of Value Hive is brought to you by Tegas. If you enjoy listening to Value Hive, you'll love the Tegas product. Tegas has the world's largest collection of instantly available expert interviews on all the public and private companies that you care about. All you have to do is log in. So if you're tired of high cost and time-consuming expert research calls, give Tegas a try and see for yourself why many of the most trusted and well-respected hedge funds, mutual funds, family offices, allocators, and VCs rely on Tegas to scale their expert research and to get the critical information they need faster than ever. You can sign up for a free trial at Tegas.co forward slash value hive. That's Tegas.co forward slash value hive. And as a personal anecdote i use tegas literally every single day it's the first resource i use when i start researching uh, a new investment and it's one of the last things i do uh, before i finish up rounding out my research and i know you'll love it as much as i do before we dive into today's conversation i want to talk to you about mit investment management company also known as matemco the investment office of mit Each year, Matimco invests with a handful of new emerging managers who it believes can earn exceptional long-term returns in support of MIT's mission. In order to help the emerging manager community more broadly, they created emergingmanagers.org, a website for emerging manager stock pickers. For those looking to start a stock picking fund or those just looking to learn about how others have done it, I highly recommend this site. You'll find essays and interviews by successful emerging managers, service providers used by MIT's own fund managers, essays Matimco has written for emerging stock pickers, and more. Matimco also occasionally and opportunistically hires new members for their investment team. To view the job description, please visit matimco.org global investor. That's M-I-T-I-M-C-O dot global investor. The Matimco team spends their time learning about great businesses and investments, working with exceptional investors around the world in order to support generations of MIT innovators. Today's episode is also brought to you by Marhelm Data. Marhelm is an information service for investors to find real value in an overvalued market. With a focus on shipping and commodities, Marhelm helps you stay on the pulse of global trade, track global sentiment, and identify compelling global investment opportunities. Value Hive listeners can get 20% off a Marhelm data subscription by using the code VALUE at checkout. That's V A L U E at checkout. Head on over to marhelm.com, M A R H E L M.com to get your discount today. This is Gator Financial Partners Q2 2023 letter. Dear Gator Financial Partners, we are pleased to provide you with Gator Financial Partners 2023 second quarter investor letter. This letter reviews the funds 2023 investment performance, updates our thoughts about the opportunities we see in regional banks, and shows examples of opportunities on both the long and short side by profiling our investment theses on old second bank corp long and Hingham Institute for Savings, short. Review of 2023 Q2 performance. During the second quarter, the fund outperformed both the broader market and the financial sector benchmark. Our long positions in First Citizens Bank shares, Arlington Investment, Sally May, Anywhere Real Estate, and Northeast Bank were top contributors to the fund's performance. The largest attractors were long positions in Jackson National and PacWest Bancorp, and short positions in Opendoor, Vornado Realty and Empire State Realty. And if we look at the return data, Gator Financial Partners has returned 19.34% annualized since inception, which inception is July 1st, 2008. So that is incredible. Back to the letter. Update on regional banks. While non-bank financials recovered from their March losses, regional banks had another tough quarter in Q2. The S&P Composite 1500 Regional Banks Index was down another 7.12% compared to the broader S&P Super Composite Financials Index, which was up 4.78%. For the first half of 2023, the Regional Bank Index was down 30.8% versus the Financial Sector Index only down 1.43%. I still believe there is opportunity in regional banks, but not every bank has the same potential. We are at the stage of the crisis where stock market investors have not greatly differentiated between regional banks based on their prospects. It seems like every regional bank is down 20 to 30% on the year, trades at six times earnings and around tangible book value. While there is some marginal differentiation, we believe there should be more based on the differences in interest rate positioning and credit risk among different regional banks. We believe there are two reasons for this lack of differentiation between regional banks. First. Exchange-traded funds, or ETFs, are a more efficient way for investors with broad, positive, or negative views of the regional bank sector to gain exposure. Second, ETFs are more liquid and have lower transaction costs than buying a basket of regional banks. When investors buy or sell an ETF, they are buying or selling a piece of every bank in that ETF and are not differentiating among them. A second reason there has not been much differentiation among banks is turmoil among professional investors who invest in regional banks. Several types of professional investors are contributing to this turmoil. A, generalist investors are reducing exposure to banks across the board due to uncertainty. B, financial sector specialist funds are suffering outflows due to poor recent performance. And C, financial sector focused managers at multi-strat funds or pod shops have reduced exposures and or liquidated for risk management purposes. These investors are selling down positions in banks, even if banks are well positioned from an interest rate and credit perspective. In a sense, they have each become forced sellers. Also, these three types of investors are the market participants who would normally do the detailed analysis to make investment decisions based on the differentiation between different regional banks. But as forced sellers, they are selling across their bank holdings without regard for underlying financials or fundamentals. This is a unique time where the opportunity set of news and change within regional bank stocks is higher than ever, but the participants have less capital to take advantage of the opportunities. Long OSBC versus short HIFS. Above, we made the case that we see opportunities in both the long and short side of banks based on the bank's interest rate positioning. We present the case of a long position in old second Bancorp versus a short position in Hingham Institute for Savings. Both banks trade at similar valuations but they are opposites as far as interest rate positioning. Old South Bank Corp is a commercial bank in the far western suburbs of Chicago. Old Second is valued at 1.4 times tangible book. The company is well positioned for the current interest for the current high short interest rate high short term interest rate environment. In 2021, Old Second acquired Western Suburb West Suburban, which was focused on suburban markets between Old Seconds Branches and downtown Chicago. West Suburban has had great branch locations in DuPage County that the former CEO had purchased in the 1950s and 60s. These branches create a very strong core deposit franchise with long-term customers. Over the past six quarters old seconds net interest yield spread has risen from 2.77 to 4.17 as earning yields on loans and securities have risen and the deposit franchise remains stable with funding at relatively low rates we can see the increase in net yield at old second in the graph below the light green line at the bottom of the chart shows the cost of deposits low and rising gradually rising asset yields have outpaced rising deposit costs until the most recent quarter the dark green line is the net yield, which has risen. Admittedly, the net yield will not expand from current levels, but continued asset repricing should offset further increases in deposit costs. Hingham Institute for Savings is a former savings, bank, former savings and loans bank based in the South Shore in Massachusetts. Hingham stock trades at 1.2 times tangible book. Most of Hingham's loans are fixed-rate apartment buildings. Unfortunately, these apartment owners do not have much deposit business to bring to the bank, so Hingham's deposit base is very in- interest rate sensitive. Over the past six quarters, Hingham's net yield spread has declined from 339 to 0.66%. We expect further declines in Hingham's margin over the next few quarters and believe the bank could possibly have negative net interest income late this year or early next year. In the chart below, we see the dual problem. Hingham's earning asset yields are not rising quickly due to the largely fixed rate nature of its loan portfolio, and the deposit franchise has shown weakness with a rapidly rising cost of funds. There are explanations for why these banks trade at similar valuations despite vastly different outlooks. Old Second had a minor hiccup with some of the loans they acquired in the West Suburban acquisition. We have gone through the loans with management and believe these are ring-fenced and reflect the more conservative credit culture at Old Second versus West Suburban. A second possible reason for the lack of differentiation between the banks is that Hingham does not have sell-side coverage from the brokerage community. The lack of coverage makes sense because the high dollar stock price limits trading commissions and Hingham is not an acquirer of other banks, so they generate minimal investment banking fees. A third possible reason is the difference in the track records of the two banks. Old Second had a tougher time getting through the great financial crisis than did Hingham. Old Second had to work through credit issues in its commercial real estate portfolio and Hingham sailed through that period without serious issues in its apartment loan book. We believe these possible explanations for the lack of differentiation are overwhelmed by the outlook for these banks' net interest margin in the coming quarters. We can see upside for old second to to at least two times tangible book with high book value growth over the next few years. We believe Hingham should trade at 0.5 times tangible book. In a higher for longer scenario, we see the possibility that Hingham's book value may decline due to negative net income over the next couple of years. We believe these two banks represent good opportunity or good examples of the opportunity in, re- in regional banks on both the long and short side of the fund's portfolio. Now doing some portfolio analysis. Largest positions. Below are the fund's five largest common equity longs. All data is as of June 30th. Long, First Citizens Bank, and Genworth Financial, First Bank of Puerto Rico, OFG bank corp, Jackson financial. And then they've got their subsector weightings, which most of their long exposure is in large and small banks with life insurance, real estate and capital markets um, rounding out kind of the top five. The fund's gross exposure is 197% and its net exposure is 82%. From this table, we exclude fixed income instruments such as preferred stock. Preferred stock positions account for an additional 20.8% of the portfolio. Conclusion, thank you for entrusting us with a portion of your wealth. We are grateful for you, our investors, who believe and trust in our strategy. On a personal level, Derek Pilecki, the fund's portfolio manager, continues to have more than 80% of his liquid net worth invested in the fund. On June 30th, we celebrated the 15th anniversary of Gator Financial Partners. We are thankful for our partners. We know the expected lifespan of a small hedge fund is not long, so we're proud to have made it this far. We're looking forward to making everyone money over the next 15 years. Derek has begun splitting his time between New York and Tampa. We have rented an apartment near Grand Central Terminal and are looking for a small office. If you know of any other funds looking to sublease office space, please let us know. As always, we welcome the opportunity to speak with you and discuss the fund. Sincerely, Gator Capital Management. This is Palm Harbor Capital's Q2 2023 letter. During the second quarter, the fund lost 2.6% gross of fees. We do not have a stated benchmark in our key investment information document, and therefore cannot comment on relative performance. We leave it up to you to decide. We note the above number appears below European and global benchmarks. Inception to quarter end return was 42.9% or 8.7% compounded annual return. Our last reported NAV at quarter end was 13.84 minus 2.3% from the closest reported NAV at the first quarter end of 14.16. We are extremely optimistic about our portfolio's prospects and believe we will reach our compound return aspiration over time. Our fund's composition is unlike any index, and we are unlikely to perform in a similar manner. The second quarter of 2023 was not a particularly pleasant one. The market seemingly forgot the lessons of 2022 and dived into speculative stocks that claimed anything to do with artificial intelligence it is amazing how investors seem to haphazardly jump from one speculative story to another the worst part of this particular craze for us was the endless questions on conference calls and meetings where analysts seem to be obliged to ask about every single company's AI strategy, no matter the industry. And the CEO had to tell everyone that the company has been working on it for years and is ahead of the pack. Sure. It is not obvious to us that there is significant money to be made investing in AI. It seems to us that AI will develop more slowly and over a much longer time horizon than those punting believe. And traditional competitive dynamics make it more likely that most benefits will be copied and competed away rather than accru- rather than accruing to medium-term top-line growth and margins. Identifying mispriced shares of the ultimate beneficiaries today seems a very tall task. Instead, we will stick to what we do best, looking for investments away from the pack while keeping a keen eye on potential real disruption in our industries. Needless to say, we owned no large cap tech stocks and did not participate in their recent rally. We are okay with this. While a couple of these equities appeared to become reasonably valued for a brief period at the end of last year, the market quickly forgot the reasons they sold off in the first place and jumped on the next bandwagon. May felt like a particularly bleak month for us. It appeared for a couple of weeks that absolutely nothing could go right. Some of the companies we own reported great earnings and decent outlooks only to fall dramatically. Those that reported anything less than Stellar got smashed. No one wanted to own small caps, European equities, and anything that disappointed even a little bit. We had a couple of bits of genuinely bad news too, which we will note below. Overall, it was a gloomy month. Around the end of May, things began to change, and June reminded us that good things happened to companies with low valuations that produce a lot of cash. Positive events occurred in several of our companies, including an announced strategic initiative in our largest position, IGT, a partial tender offer in RHI Magnesita, and a takeover bid by the parent of Treasure ASA. While the portfolio didn't perform particularly well during the quarter, under the hood, there are several other very interesting developments that, that took place which we think will help drive future returns. U.S. markets are again dearly valued. Inflation and interest rates outlooks are, as always, unknowns, As is the future direction of the economy. The Chinese recovery seems to be disappointing. We note several major profit warnings in the chemical industry. We don't know the future, but we are quite happy owning our portfolio of deeply discounted securities and are quite optimistic that this value will be realized over time. As a reminder, we are shareholders of Treasure ASA, a listed holding company in Norway, whose only asset is an 11% stake in Korean listed company Hyundai Glovis, which we mentioned in our fourth quarter 2020 letter. We like the company due to the double discount, as we believe Glovis is around 80 to 100% undervalued. On the 7th of June 2023, parent company Wallenius Wilhelmsen Holding made an offer for the minority at NOK 20 per share at a rather miserly 10% premium to the previous day and a 30% discount to the prevailing price of the Glovis shares. We wrote a letter to the independent board members stating the obvious. We have undisputable valuation reference in the listed shares, which we believe to be undervalued. They came back with muted response, but at least had hired local broker Pareto to perform an independent analysis. This report agreed that the offer was insufficient. Subsequently, Glovis shares have appreciated by 17.6%, further increasing the discount. We believe a fair price would be a small discount to the prevailing Glovis shares so that holders could reinvest on the same economic terms or receive pro rata shares of Glovis. We believe that other shareholders share the same view, hence we are willing to wait for a better offer. At the quarter end, the discount was 37.4%, leaving us with roughly 60% upside to the prevailing Glovis price and over 200% to our estimated fair value. We saw several opportunities in special situations during the quarter and added three of them, which we believe will help drive the fund returns in the coming quarters. We also added a significant position in the recent IPO of Lodomatica SPA, which we outline later in this letter. We exited three positions, including our long held stake in MTU Aero Engines. We purchased these shares during the COVID drawdown at an extremely attractive price. While we believe it is a long term compounder and still has some modest upside, we decided to move the capital to more compelling opportunities. We sold our investment in iHeartMedia after a grueling holding period. The company's leverage gave us significant upside, yet also a high risk profile. We positioned it accordingly, but it remained a volatile position. The company's growing podcast business and operating leverage would have given us cash flows necessary to delever to produce substantial returns. However, the company suffered a couple of self-inflicted wounds, including changing their selling strategy in the midst of a downturn in advertising and not hedging their floating rate debt. This absorbed their cash flows, and now with a limited runway to pay off debt before maturities in 2026 and 2027, we think the risk of impairment, permanent impairment is too high. We decided to take the loss and reinvest the proceeds in more compelling opportunities with lower risk. The third sale was a tiny position that arose from a spinoff, which appreciated rapidly whilst we were expecting a decline in which we could have added to the position. At the end of the quarter, our portfolio had more than 113% upside to our estimated nav and was trading at a weighted average PE of 7.5 times free cash flow to EV yield of 19% and return on tangible capital of 33%. The top contributor during the quarter was International Game Technology, the Italian American lottery and gaming machine technology provider, introduced in our first quarter 2020 letter. In May, the company reported first quarter results slightly above expectations and reiterated full year guidance. Nevertheless, the stock fell and remained weak for the remainder of the month. In June, the board announced that it was exploring alternatives for the global gaming and play digital businesses, including a possible sale, a merger, or spin-off of the units. The stock then rallied on hopes that some of the parts might be unlocked. The most relevant transaction for the lottery business was when Brookfield purchased Scientific Games' smaller lottery business during the third quarter of 2021, paying around 13 times trailing EV to EBITDA. We also note that French lottery, La Francaise des Jeux FDJ, on um, the French exchange, trades at around 10 times forward EV to EBITDA. Gaming peers such as Light and Wonder and Aristocrat trade at 9 times and 12 times EV to EBITDA, respectively. IGT, before the announcement, was trading at 7 times EV to EBITDA. We believe that breaking the business into two parts would unlock significant value. We still see significant upside on a cash flow basis, and even more in a breakup scenario despite the recent rally. The second largest contributor was RHI Magnesita, the, Aus- the Austrian-Brazilian refractories company, introduced in our second quarter 2019 letter. In early May, the company gave a brief trading update that whilst volumes were falling, earnings were improving due to lower cost inflation and price increases. The stock traded poorly afterwards. In very late May, Ignite Luxembourg Holdings, an entity indirectly managed by the private equity fund Roan Capital, made a tender offer for 20% of RHI shares at a 39% premium to the previous day's close and included the $1 dividend due to be paid. Roan subsequently raised the amount they would buy to 29.99% of shares. Given that insiders control more than 40% of the shares and assuming they do not sell, the bid is for roughly half of the free float shares. We do not know exactly why a private equity firm would want a 30% stake when there is a controlling shareholder, though they would have an equally sized holding if the tender goes through. However, it does clearly indicate how undervalued the company is. If Roen thinks the offering, that offering a 39% premium for the shares makes sense, they must clearly see significantly more upside from here. We agree. The third significant contributor was an undisclosed Greek food producer. The company suffered last year from raw material, energy, and transport cost inflation. We believe these headwinds are set to reverse this year, while the strong shift of consumers to private label is expected to further support the recovery. The company has been growing steadily with a five-year CAGR of 17% as they expanded their geographic footprint and gained market share. The management plans to further increase production capacity to meet the growing demand. The fourth largest contributor was C. Yuyamura. I definitely butchered that, but it's the Japanese chemical supplier to the printed circuit board industry, which we introduced in our second quarter 2021 letter. In May, the company reported full year numbers, which were better than guidance, and updated their three year business plan, including a weaker 2023 24 fiscal year. The shares moved higher in June, which we can possibly ascribe to the anticipation of a pickup in demand, a weaker yen, potential subsidies to the semiconductor industry, and or a general gain in the Japanese market. In fact, the company gained 26.6% in yen terms as yen depreciated 8.3% versus the euro during the quarter. The fifth contributor was VAR Energy the Norwegian oil and gas operator. VAR continued to generate cash supported by improved production efficiency, stable oil and gas volumes, and high realized prices. VAR obtained an average realized price of $116 per barrel of oil in the quarter, mainly through fixed price contracts, covering the next three quarters and flexible gas sales agreements. During the quarter, management announced the acquisition of all the operations of Neptune Energy Norway, Norgy, in Norway for a cash consideration of two point three billion, while ENI will acquire all remaining operations for two point six billion, excluding Germany. Ownership of twelve producing assets, three of which are operated by Neptune Norway, and seven by Equinor, adds sixty seven thousand barrels of oil per day of daily production and two hundred and sixty five million barrels of oil of two P reserves to Var's portfolio. And this coupled with several near and midterm growth opportunities makes it attractive. Combined figure soy production of 281,000 barrels of oil per day in the first quarter of 2023 and reserves of 1.3 billion barrels of oil. VAR is on track to deliver a 50% production increase by 2025. The company distributed $270 million in dividends in the quarter and expects to distribute approximately 30% of after-tax cash from operations by year-end. The top detractor was... Esprinet, the Italian electronics distributor, introduced in our fourth quarter 2019 letter. Esprinet reported a first quarter in line with expectations, although displaying weaker year over year performance, due primarily to a weakness in PCs, mobile, and TVs as consumer demand fell and a subsidy ended. Full-year guidance came in below our expectations, but the potential remains for year-over-year growth if the second half improves somewhat. However, the real pain came from an unexpected tax dispute settlement. Whilst we knew there was some small amount of tax litigation taking place, as with most Italian companies, we were caught rather unprepared for the size of the potential penalties. From our understanding, in 2013 to 2017, the company sold less than 1% of revenues to customers without value-added tax, as these customers were declared re-exporters. The tax authorities, in retrospect, decided these customers could not be classified as re-exporters, and so VAT should have been collected. Esprinet claims to have done everything they should have according to the law, but the government disagrees and has filed suit. Although Esprinet management believes they should win the case, the tax authorities have demanded an upfront payment of all potential liabilities and penalties pending the court's decision. Given the judicial process in Italy could take anywhere from 5 to 10 years, the total payment would be $220 million, which, give, which given Esprinet's size is a very large amount to be tied up for that timeframe, especially given current interest rates. Instead, the company decided to settle the case for about 14% of the total and be allowed to pay it over five years. As this is about 10% of the market cap of the company, the shares were hard hit, though the discounted cash flow over that period is much less. We are flabbergasted that Italian tax authorities are allowed to bully a company into such a settlement, which seems reminiscent of a protection racket rather than a fair fiscal regime in a developed country. The second largest attractor was an undisclosed microcap, which fell as they revised their previous estimates for the prior year and delayed their filings. The company is going through growth pains and apparently does not have the accounting controls that a public listed company requires. The error was a simple bookkeeping mistake. That it took the auditors to identify it shows a weakness of their financial department and CFO. The entrepreneur is well aware of this and is taking corrective actions, but it does dent his credibility. We are willing to give him the benefit of the doubt for now, but we'll keep a sharp eye on his pick for new CFO and other key positions that require changing. We still believe the risk reward is very attractive. The third largest detractor was LNA Santa, the French nursing home and healthcare facilities operator, which we introduced in our fourth quarter 2022 letter. Revenue from nursing homes in France, other healthcare activities, and the international business segment all increased, posting a combined organic growth of 6.9%. The occupancy rate has fully recovered to pre pandemic levels and currently stands at 97%. Excluding home hospitalization, significantly higher than the two closest peers. Management expects growth to accelerate in the coming quarters and tariff renegotiations to gradually alleviate margin pressure. Management reiterated an organic growth target of 6% and sales target of 725 million euros for 2023. We continue to believe that LNA faces short term rather than structural challenges, hence, offer significant upside. Our fourth largest attractor was OCI the Dutch nitrogen fertilizer and methanol producer introduced in our second quarter 2019 letter and further updated in our fourth quarter 2021 letter. After a stellar 2022, the market for ammonia and urea softened sharply in the first and second quarters of 2023 as gas prices fell quickly, also causing hedging losses and lowering the cost curve. Lower input costs have also driven some capacity back into the market with the subsequent impact on margin outlook. We had lowered our exposure substantially but were caught off guard by the rapid volume weakness in the agricultural market despite most fundamentals remaining quite strong we remain structurally positive on ammonia urea def and methanol markets and believe oci's assets to be undervalued the fifth significant detractor was melco international the holding company of a macau casino operator melco continued to see improving momentum into april and golden week in may with mass market table game drop Table games drop in mass gross gaming revenue during the Golden Week period, exceeding the same period in 2019. First quarter 2023 recovery was 70% versus 2019, but management expects to fully recover by June 2023. Overall, visits in Macau are down versus pre-COVID levels, but improving on a week-by-week basis with premium mass visitations already above pre-COVID levels. Deleveraging remains the top priority for management. The leverage and weaker-than-expected Chinese recovery are probably behind the recent share price performance. However, Macau GGR recovery paves the way for strong fundamentals going forward. Lodomatica SPA. Lodomatica was formed through the merger of GameNet, a player in the Italian gaming machines market, and IGT's Italian B2C operation, which completed in 2021. We happen to know both businesses very well as we held GameNet until it was taken private and continued to hold IGT today. The company recently went public during a challenging time, which presented an opportunity to acquire a stake at an attractive price. Lodomatica's recession-resistant model, coupled with a strong market share in a consolidated growth market and an advanced regulatory regime, combined with a low valuation, creates significant potential upside with an attractive risk profile. Lodomatica is a leading Italian gaming company that offers a variety of online games such as casino, poker, bingo, and sports betting. Additionally, the company operates a franchise retail distribution network for sports betting and gaming. Online represents 46% of the group's EBITDA in 2022 and includes iSports, iGaming, and other online products. Sports franchise represents 20% of EBITDA with the segment covering products such as sports, virtual, and horse racing betting. Gaming franchise represents 34% of EBITDA and involves the direct management of gaming halls and concessionary activities for VLTs and AWPs. The Italian gaming market is the largest in Europe with over 20 billion in gross gaming revenues with Lodomatica being the leading operator. The market is expected to grow at 6 to 7% over the next four to five years, mainly powered by the double-digit growth in online and iGaming verticals, while offline is expected to grow at low single digits. Whilst the online penetration in Italy grew from 14% in 2019 to 28% in 2022, it remains well behind the other developed markets such as the UK, France and the Nordics at 65%, 47% and 85% respectively. The company is leading the online gaming market in Italy, hence it's expected to be a beneficiary of this trans transition. Lodomatica's risk includes single country risk for macro and regulation and uncertainty around the concession renewal framework. However, we feel we are compensated. For these risks as the stock trades at a free cash flow yield above 10% on 2023 and 14% plus on 2025 numbers with a strong tailwind for market transition to online gaming, defensive characteristics and leverage below two times, we think the market will slowly recognize the value of the business once regulatory uncertainties fade away. We end with a quote from our GameNet write-up in our, 2020, in our 2019 Q2 letter. While many value investors would not invest in a recent IPO, especially one owned by private equity, we find they sometimes present interesting opportunities. PE makes most of its return from levering up quality businesses with strong cash flows. We too like to own businesses with strong cash flows. We just prefer lower debt and well-invested assets. Since PE funds have a limited lifetime, it is often possible to buy towards the end of a fund's life cycle when the fund can be thought of as something of a forced seller. This can lead to interesting valuations for potential buyers. PE can rarely sell its entire stake in the IPO and thus has an interest in the share price not collapsing soon after. The IPO proceeds are often used to pay down debt and as the financials under PE ownership often look unappealing, few quant funds or other statistical investors tend to be interested. The management teams have often have sizable stakes, which we like and gives us some comfort they will invest properly in the business. PE also has reputational risks and may not want to taint their next deal. We feel these can be interesting special situations. As stated in our previous letter, we are currently not charging a management fee until the fund reaches a larger size. The founder's class management fee will then be only 1% of assets. We do not charge entry or exit commissions despite our KIID saying it is theoretically possible. Our focus is and remains on the portfolio, but we do need to grow our assets to a sustainable level. Please feel free to share this letter with any potential investors. We now have a commercial agreement with Cobis Asset Management to distribute our fund in Spain. You can now open an account and place orders with them. For more information, please contact them via phone and email. Our fund can be invested through both European International Central Securities depositors and Clearstream through the Vestima Fund clearing platform. Our fund is registered for distribution in the UK, Spain, and Luxembourg. If you have any issues finding our fund or you wish to get more information about us and our process, please contact us at ir at palmharborcapital.com. We thank you for your ongoing support. We continue to believe this is a great time to be a value investor and are very excited about the medium-term prospects for the current portfolio. Yours faithfully, Palm Harbor Capital. All right, this is a new... A letter to the Investor Audible series, Salt Light SNN Worldwide Flexible Fund. It's the first time I've heard of this fund, and if you have heard of them before, yeah, this will be, be good for you. Um, I scrolled through, and it actually looks kind of interesting, some of the discussions that they have, so I hope you like it. Dear Co-Investor, close your eyes and allow your mind to gently recount the melody of your favorite song. Visualize the graceful dance of each note, the emotional rise and fall of the chorus, and the commanding beats that set the rhythm. When this ensemble works together in magical ways, time can be lost to great music. This intricate creation transcends the mere arrangement of the composition. It's a display of the power of musical alchemy. Envision now the artist, the architect sculpting this musical masterpiece. Every lyric, beat, tempo, and sound is meticulously interwoven, forming an emotional tapestry that is as perplexing as it is beautiful. Each note and word create an unseen bridge between the artist's talents and your mind. Tugging at your heartstrings, igniting your thoughts, and awakening your emotions. This is the one, is one of the most remarkable products of humanity. Every musical artist aspires to those moments of connection with the listener. Just one moment of the glimpse that you just had. That's why they get up in the morning. Curating opportunities, weighing odds. At Salt Light, we are motivated by the same creative passion. We pour our hearts into our work, doing it not as a mere vocation, but as an act of creation. Instead of melodies and rhymes, our composition unfolds on a different stage. We see ourselves as treasure hunters, sifting through a vast terrain, discovering hidden opportunities, and appraising their potential for reward. Over time, as we collect these coarse rocks, we observe, adjust, and refine our approach. Our single goal is laser focused on one event, the grand opening exhibit set for the year 2028. This is when we present our hope, Kulinan, and Kohinor diamonds. The economic ensemble that we have assembled our anticipated opportunities, the innovative products and services that have changed consu- cu- customers' lives, the problems that were once impossible but now solved. Most artists work in hidden, poorly lit studios until their creations are revealed to the world. We share the journey of this curation through our letters to you, our co-investors. These letters are our backstory. This is our Netflix documentary about what goes on behind the scenes. This is our journey, our mindset, our process, and our responses to the unexpected twists and turns that inevitably influence our portfolio. In this letter, because of the size of the opportunity, we continue to talk about AI. The hype, the drama, and the rapidly evolving landscape as we share our perspective on where we are focused at the moment. Our discussion then turns towards our exposures in South Africa, which have unfortunately been detracting from our performance. Time will tell how this twist in the story will unfold. We take this opportunity to provide clarity on our approach and share our perspectives on the opportunity set that region that that this region presents. Artificial intelligence with calculated caution. In our last quarterly letter, we extensively discussed our broad thoughts on artificial intelligence, or AI, Hypothesizing that AI heralds a multi-decade investable opportunity. To borrow the terminology of Carletta Perez, we see the diffusion of AI as a techno-economic epoch of sweeping transformation that will reshape our economic, political, and social landscape. But But despite the intentional grandeur of this opening statement, our investment approach to this promising future is navigated with calculated caution. History has demonstrated a few recurring themes that we would be remiss to ignore. First, emerging technologies tend to exhibit significant instability during their immature stages. Second, despite the inherent uncertainties and wide-ranging nonlinear outcomes, the zeitgeist tends to nurture visions of unlimited opportunity, often disregarding the inevitable valley of despair present in every historical arc. Lastly, when the eager embrace of financial capital latches onto a narrative, the gap between anticipated growth and reality can become meaningly far apart. Beyond our cautious tone, it is exhilarating to observe how the innovation spirit of both individual tinkerers and corporate pioneers has been unleashed. It must be remembered that in previous technological epochs, e.g. the age of steel or the steam engine, only the very wealthy or connected could tinker with the technology. Today, because of the vast tentacles of the internet, everyone can dabble. However, there is a democratic ceiling, especially when it comes to creating robust neural network models on domain-specific data. The computational capacity required is both costly and scarce. Most enterprises resort to using existing closed models because they lack the resources and expertise to build their own. In time, we expect these constraints to lessen. At this moment, constraints are investable opportunities and we're leaning into them. Over the long term, we really want to seek the the entrepreneurs and businesses that democratize the technology. We don't know how that story exactly unfolds yet, but we remain dedicated to identifying the signs and positioning our portfolio to benefit from this unfolding narrative. AI infrastructure problem. The crux of our discussion last quarter was that Salt Light's approach is derived from the lessons of previous technological epochs. We have deliberately concentrated our portfolio investments on the infrastructure layer of the AI stack because every preceding epoch underwent a substantial installation period before the technology fully diffused. Today, moving atoms rather than electrons is the primary challenge. This is our working hypothesis at present. However, the entire AI landscape is rapidly evolving. Therefore, as we continue to learn more and as events progress, our assertions will undoubtedly be refined and updated. With that in mind, here are a few insights to our portfolio companies. We hope that these snippets will give you a glimpse of the intricate canvas that we are gradually painting. NVIDIA NVIDIA has become the de facto AI name in the market, and rightly so, and has delivered a remarkable performance for us. We have been gradually trimming our investment to what we call an optionality size position as the stock price has dramatically gone up. Conditions are chalk and cheese to when we first purchased the investment. Recent news makes us think twice. PyTorch 2.0, the machine learning framework, recently announced support for AMD GPUs, which is a negative for an NVIDIA. For many readers, this may be getting into the weeds, but in our 2021 May letter, we discussed one aspect of NVIDIA's competitive advantage, its proprietary CUDA software. Operating as the interface between their GPUs and machine learning libraries, CUDA, has become the standard layer in the AI stack to enable parallelized processing, a critical function for complex neural networks. Competing cheaper GPUs with inferior working libraries struggled to gain meaningful traction because the early versions of machine learning libraries, PyTorch and TensorFlow, did not directly interface with them. This created friction for developers and effectively blocked cheaper competitor GPUs from handling machine learning workloads. Wide adoption of PyTorch means that PyTorch has become the de facto layer that most AI developers interact with. Machine learning libraries are now the gatekeeper. In March, PyTorch 2.0 was released with out-of-the-box support for AMD's GPUs. It's early days, but we believe this development could chip away at the decade-long competitive advantage NVIDIA has enjoyed. This development warrants our attention and careful observation as it unfolds. Lam Research, Lam Research, a leading toolmaker for memory and logic semiconductor fabs, has demonstrated its resilience and competitive positioning in the semiconductor ecosystem. Chip densities are now approaching the limits of physics, and Moore's Law stretched to its atomic limitations. Future innovation is around three D stacks of chips and advancing and advanced packaging. Lam has heavily invested in tools that push innovation at the atomic level. Despite this investment, it requires little shareholder capital to grow, and therefore it returns capital through and therefore it returns capital through healthy dividends and share repurchases. Lam has been a wonderful performer for us over the last 2 years. ASML. ASML has no competitor. We'd characterize it as a monetary apex apex predator. This privileged position allows the company to capture value within the semiconductor industry. You can see it in the margins and operating leverage. ASML's customers are so eager for their products that they're willing to pay upfront two years before a machine is even delivered. This is a testament to the company's unrivaled capabilities and the high demand for its unique offerings. It will keep this privileged position as long as it continues to push the frontiers of chip density. ASML announced this quarter that their first high NA machines, costing $200 million per machine, are going to start shipping in 2024. This is a new source of its technological moat and earnings for the next decade. For the curious reader, we recommend looking up extreme ultraviol- ultraviolet lithography tools to truly grasp how this technology could be considered magic for what it accomplishes. Beyond infrastructure, we do own some portfolio investments that we call AI companies in sheep's clothing. These traditional legacy businesses have created proprietary AI tools that will drive their future value creation. One example is AppLovin, which connects game publishers and advertisers through its AI model. AppLovin earns a tax on each successful advertisement, and therefore it depends on as much data going through its network as possible. This also widens their moat because more data means better pricing and better targeting for the ecosystem. It's worth mentioning that having a legacy label has been somewhat beneficial for us. Last year, during the height of the Apple app tracking fears, we bought this business at a single digit multiple. Although I don't know what multiple that is, whether it's sales, earnings, or cash flow. I assume it's sales since it's software. But, anyways, back to the letter Killing risks. Over the last two quarters, our portfolio has had us quick stepping down the road like John Travolta in Saturday Night Fever with Staying Alive playing in the background, thanks in part to a moderating pace of interest rate hikes and easing inflation data. Conversely, our South African exposure has been a bumpy ride, akin to navigating a road riddled with potholes while Coldplay's Fix You plays on repeat. Presently, valuations, Of South African public companies are wallowing at unprecedented lows. Private businesses are being sold at much higher valuations than public companies, and as a result, the number of listed companies over the last decade has halved. Changes in recent pension fund rules allowing an increase in foreign exposure have exacerbated the exodus. This past year, market players have been grappling with a litany of concerns, frequent power outages, growing geopolitical tensions, and political dysfunction. It's probably not superfluous to say that voluntary capital has left the country. Let's momentarily put aside the stark imagery of the Titanic's final moments. This challenging backdrop indeed invigorates our contrarian instincts, reminding us of the wisdom conveyed in Edward Chancellor's seminal book, Capital Returns. The central premise is that such moments of extreme capital scarcity often present ripe opportunities. The general principle of investing is that good things need to happen. Distressed investing, conversely, is about widely anticipated negative events that do not materialize. Our collection includes a distressed portfolio of businesses that are a unique breed of survivors and thrivers amid entropy. These are five highly researched, highly asymmetric opportunities. Make no mistake about it, some of these portfolio companies are priced as distressed assets but scratch the surface and there are robust businesses underneath. Our wager is that the market has overweighted the likelihood of negative outcomes. What we are primarily seeking is for the perceived risks to be mitigated over the next two years. If just two or three of these opportunities pan out as anticipated, the return on this portfolio should adequately compensate for the risks. A few comments about the portfolio. Transaction capital. Our bet is that the sum of the various parts exceeds what the share price suggests. We think there are multiple ways to slice and dice value creation. The cold-hearted short-term game theory optimal action would be to simply let the South African taxi business fail and let the cross-default firewalls prevent contagion to the rest of the business. Yet, despite recent missteps, own goals and uncontrollable ones, the market has forgotten that SA Taxi has a unique position in South Africa. The minibus taxi industry is not going to go away, it is vital for millions and the assets have inherent economic value for at least 10 to 15 years. SA Taxi needs to find a sustainable model that balances value capture between riders, owners, and financiers. The disparity in price versus some of the parts, we believe, stems from the market discounting a high likelihood of a punitive rights issue to bolster capital adequacy levels in SA Taxi. This might still happen, but there are many levers that they can pull. Meanwhile, We Buy Cars is the buried treasure of the whole company. We recently sold a vehicle on We Buy Cars, and it was a frictionless positive experience. We concur with management's strategy of growing bays and market share looking at the trends among international peers adding finance and insurance products substantially enhances margins notably peers do not use their own balance sheets to fund these financial products likewise we buy cars recently announced that they have partnered with a local bank to fund this book which they believe can get to r20 billion the market at present does not attribute any value to this potential opportunity SA Taxi has a six-month time frame to roll over its intermediate bullet payments. We will soon gain insight into the lender's course of action. If a successful rollover is achieved, this would represent the mitigation of the risk we're anticipating. Purple Group. This quarter, we invested additional capital in Purple Group, a name that many will associate with its largest business, Easy Equities. The capital was primarily raised to expand their operations into the Philippines in a partnership with GCash, a platform with a staggering 66 million active users. EE's significant South Africa success can be attributed to its focus on what most competitors consider the least profitable customer segment, young investors with small asset bases. EE aggregated over a million customers by leveraging complementary online distribution channels, Captix, 9 million app users, Discovery Bank, and Telecom Mobile. An analysis of the data reveals that the attrition rate among active, um, among active users is negligible once they deposit a modest sum of capital. Considering the relatively young age of the average EE user, retaining these customers throughout their careers could significantly compound unit economics. This is achieved through the growth of investable earnings and product upsells, making EE's lifetime value and returns on CAC highly active or er, attractive. As EE expands into the Philippines, it intends on following a similar partnership playbook. EE's expansion is not without its challenges. For context, the retail investing landscape in the Philippines echoes South Africa's market conditions of 15 to 20 years ago. EE is having to lay the groundwork with regulators by introducing them to fractional shares and allowing domestic retail investors to invest offshore. Despite these hills to climb, if one, EE can successfully overcome the regulatory humps and two, convert even a small portion of GCash's customer base, the CAC would remain extremely attractive. As a result, even a modest volume of trading activity could yield satisfactory returns on capital. With EE investing about $3.3 million of the $8.5 million capital raised to tap into this $66 million user base, they're taking a relatively minimal risk for the potential of substantial returns. Blue Label Telecoms. Over the past year, our hypothesis is that the risk-reward dynamic at Blue Label Telecoms has fundamentally altered. Last month marked a significant turning point for CELSI as they powered down their last owner their last owned towers. This shift means CELSI has transitioned from a capital intensive cellular cellular operator to a more capital light cellular wholesaler, signifying a substantial reduction in risk. You'd think management would be on the business press circuit, peddling the change in environment. Not quite. In our recent meeting with Blues Management, they displayed minimal enthusiasm for selling the evolving narrative. Typically, managers of publicly listed companies excel at promoting their equity story, making this deviation all the more remarkable. We believe there are several key developments to monitor. Updated information on the effectiveness of the partnership with Capitec. Reduced accounting complexity of the combined business if or when Blue obtains control of Celsi. Insight into Celsi's free cash flow generation following the decommission of its towers. If one or more of these factors turns out to be positive, they'll serve as risk killers to the substantial uncertainty implied in the stock price. The core blue business is currently valued in single digits. We'll know more after this year's end. Being paid for taking risk. Let's address a question that many co-investors may justifiably ask. With the substantial risk currently present in South Africa, why would anyone take the plunge? From our experience, a lesson that we've learned over and over again is an aphorism. The money is made in the uncertainty. As long as we're being paid for the risk, it is worth taking. This is our art, seizing on good risks. Consider our experience in October of last year. Investing in U.S. technology seemed like a grueling proposition. Inflation was on an uphill climb, interest rates were soaring, and the tech sector was nursing a post-COVID hangover. The magnitude of uncertainty was palpable, a feeling that resonated deeply within us while we tread these uncertain waters we find solace in one aspect the companies in our south african portfolio are survivors and thrivers demonstrating resilience regardless of the macroeconomic environment of course their performance would soar should the economic landscape improve but it's not crucial because of the margin of safety that we have idiosyncratic risk killers are what we need to play out as always we take this moment to remind our co-investors that the lion's share of our liquid wealth is invested right alongside yours in the same fund we are with you in the ups and the inevitable downs, and that's how it ought to be. We would not have it any other way. Warmly, David Eberl, Portfolio Manager. This episode is brought to you by Ticker. Ticker.com is focused on bringing institutional-level investment research to you, the individual investor. Ticker.com is powered by S&P Global Capital IQ and has coverage of over 50,000 stocks globally with financial data, estimates, valuation metrics, ownership percentages, Transcript filings, news, and more. Value Hive listeners can join Ticker's free beta trial today at ticker.com forward slash Hive. That's T I K R.com forward slash Hive.